on the Monsters Lair podcast. Let's get to re- Alright guys, so let me explain the concept of this new series, The Monsters Reads. It's pretty much how it sounds like. I'm going to be picking a book from my collection that has to do with the macabre, the weird, um, you know, all the things that we're into here in the Monsters Lair. It's really the only criteria. And uh, I'm basically going to take whatever book that I pick for the current selection and read it cover to cover and record me doing so for some of your guys' listening enjoyment. I know this is not for everyone. That's why this is going to be an additional series within the releases of the normal episodes. It's going to coincide with releases of the regular episodes for Season 4. If you enjoy it, let me know. If you don't, that's fine too. I'd still like to know. Give me feedback. Give me comments. Let me know what you guys think. I always appreciate hearing from the listeners so that I can better cultivate my content and cater to your guys' wants and needs. So with that being said, the first selection I'm doing for hopefully this ongoing series is going to be Hellraisers. As I've mentioned by Axel Rosenberg and Christopher Crobatin. These are the two gentlemen that started the heavy metal news and comedy website Metal Sucks. I'm sure some of my listeners are familiar with that site and its content. And if you enjoyed that, you'll enjoy this book. If you don't enjoy that or you've never heard of what Metal Sucks is, I think you will still enjoy this book. Even if you're not a heavy metal fan, the way this book is written is comical enough and interesting enough and full of facts and history that I think it will still hold your interest. So yeah, let's check out Hellraisers by Axel Rosenberg and Christopher Crovatin, a complete visual history of heavy metal mayhem with Forward by Matt Heafy. Those of you who may not know who Matt Heafy is, is the front man of a metal band called Trivium. They're extremely popular. They're one of the more mainstream metal bands out there. Matthew Heafy is not only the frontman of Trivium, he has many other musical side projects and is also now a very big YouTube personality outside of heavy metal. So I'm interested to see how this new series goes. I'm interested to get into it. So let's go. Hellraisers, a complete visual history of heavy metal mayhem by Alex Rosenberg and Christopher Crobatin. This book is dedicated to the Birmingham sheet metal machine that ripped off two of Tony Iommi's fingers. Thanks for everything. Forward by Matt Heafy, frontman of heavy metal band Trivium. Metal is not just a genre, it's a lifestyle. I've carried that idea with me since I first fell in love with metal. The first metal record I owned was the Black Album by Metallica. When I heard the music coming out of the speakers, I knew this was the music I was meant to live for. Inspired 
I began tirelessly practicing guitar. Within a year of playing my 8th grade talent show, I was asked to try out for a local high school metal band called Trivium. The rest is history. A key element to being metal is knowing the genre's origins and the ever-evolving subgenres that spawn and multiply. Some roll their eyes at the dissections and microcosms of metal, but I have always loved that about the genre I call home. Metal is a wormhole, an endless spring of information and inspiration. After getting into Metallica, Pantera, Megadeth, and Slayer, I wanted more. Fucking Slayer! I dug deeper into the realms of what else there could be. When I began my journey, del delving into the hellacious layers of underground metal, it was the era of Napster and metal magazines. I scoured the internet and local music stores to find who else I might like. On Napster chat, I remember someone sending me what they called melodic death metal. The term sounded ear-catching, so I dug in. When I first heard Jotun by In Flames, my life was forever changed. I wanted to know what else there was like this. I remember being in high school and explaining to friends who were just beginning to scratch the surface of heavy music what melodic death metal was. I would become filled with wonder and inspiration whenever discussing the Gothenburg sound and how melodic death metal was the combination of mostly new wave of British heavy metal, death metal from Stockholm, Sweden and Tampa, Florida, and Swedish traditional folk music. I burned mixtape CDs for friends to bring them up to speed with the subgenres I love so dearly, black metal, melodic death metal, and death metal. I still get excited when I can guess the country a band is from after hearing just a few seconds of their music. I am so happy there is finally a book that explains metal the right way, in both scathing seriousness and comedic chaos. Within the chapters of Hellraisers, you'll find both history and hilarity, along with starter kits of a subgenre and homework to listen to. Axel Rosenberg and Christopher Crovatin are about to school your ass in all things metal. Matthew K. Heafy. So a lot of the people, places, and things that I'll be talking about in this book, I've definitely made references to in past episodes of The Monster's Lair. Um, some of you may be thinking, well, what is the significance of heavy metal to a horror show? I think, honestly, it's everything. Um, heavy metal and horror go hand-in-hand hand perfectly together. And uh, when it comes to the genres of extreme metal, such as death metal and black metal, um, I've always thought of those as audio-type as an audio type of horror movie basically playing out especially with death metal bands like obituary cannibal corpse carcass um, those types of bands and their lyrical content 
and the images and brutality that they conjure up in the mind's eye it's basically like theater of the mind of a horror movie in musical form and I think it's fucking awesome and that's what I've always loved about metal so if you guys are kind of wondering like what the relevance of this is to the monster's lair I think it's a big one um I make many references as heavy metal is one of my very first passions in life so a lot of the references I make a lot of the comparisons I make inevitably make their way back to the subject of metal and a lot of the uh, personalities and people that you'll be introduced to throughout this book in the history of the genre are definitely people I've talked about so keep that in mind as you're listening good evening students and welcome to Hellraisers. We're Professors Rosenberg and Crovatin, and this semester we'll be taking you on a trip through the history and culture of the single greatest musical innovation since a caveman began beating two femurs together in a 4 by 4 rhythm. We're talking, of course, about heavy metal. For those of you new to the world of extreme music, this course will be a primer survey and heavy metal in all of its many niches. For those of you who are already knowledgeable about the genre, this course will act as a refresher. Regardless of your prior experience, this course will entertain you and provoke thought because we both have tenure and can therefore say pretty much whatever we want up here. Some of our opinions may be unpopular, but remember, you already paid the fee up front. So with all that shit out of the way, let's begin. First of all, what is metal? The easy answer is that metal is a form of rock and roll with everything turned up to 11. The hard answer is, there's no easy answer. To declare, I love metal, is a bit like saying, I love comedy. Just as there are many different styles of comedy, there are many different styles of metal. The truth is, metal's an ethos, a style, a state of mind. It's a spiritual path in which overkill is the primary virtue. It's a self-sustaining ecosystem of big personalities, extreme sounds, and stupid fucking outfits that keep evolving into larger, scarier life forms. Let's dive in with some basic, irrefutable truths, shall we? 1. Metal is awesome. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. 2. Metal is for everyone. It is a fan's record collection and tattoo choices that make him or her a poser. Not where they're from, what they look like, the god they worship, or people they bang or don't worship, or don't bang. Nazi punks, fuck off. 3. Metal can be funny. Yes, even if you love it. As the old saying goes, if you can't laugh at yourself, you're probably a Nickelback fan. 4. Just because something's awesome doesn't mean it's metal. You're allowed to like Lady Gaga, but don't give us your diatribe about how she's more metal than Judas Priest. It's possible to be cool without being metal, 
just as it's possible, unfortunately, to be metal without being cool. Do not conflate the two. 5. Listen to metal above all else. At the end of the day, metal is all about the music. So even if you don't wear spiked leather, or you like the color pink, or you've never heard of Celtic Frost, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy metal. Put some metal on right now, and rock the fuck out. About this book. Now that we've covered the basics, we'll begin our syllabus of metal's long and storied history. The major chapters of this book cover different genres of metal. These lessons will begin with some basic information about the genre and conclude with a homework assignment playlist highlighting some of the genre's finest artists and songs. We'll also include a starter pack guide, the basic items you'll need if you want to take part in metal subculture. Each chapter starts this way. What is it? A description of what this particular genre sounds like. Who listens to it? A profile of the average fan of this kind of metal. Where does it come from? The parts of the world from which this type of metal rushes forth. Bastard children. Metal is a stratified style. Every genre has subgenres, and those subgenres have subgenres of their own. Here, we'll try to amass each genre's mini offspring. The Big Four. The top four bands in this genre. Consider them the bands you should know for the test. Finally, we'd like to remind you that a lot has happened in the 50 plus year history of heavy metal, and there have been a lot of really great bands. Alas, we only have a semester to cover all this, so we'll just have time to acknowledge the heaviest hitters. If and or when you come across a genre you enjoy, we strongly encourage you to continue your education on your own. There is an entire world of incredible music out there just waiting to sully your ears. Got all that? Good. Ready? Tough shit. We're starting anyway. Your first fun fact. The Big Four was a group of four thrash bands that dominated the metal scene in the 1980s. See Thrash on page 95. The big four of Thrash are Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax. Chapter 1. Proto-Metal, or Before It Was Called Metal. What is it? Brusque and bluesy classic rock on drums. Who listens to it? Everyone when they're 13. Where does it come from? Industrial Britain, Heartland America, and Australia. Bastard Children, Heavy Metal, Hard Rock, Heavy Rock, Heavy Blues, Early Punk, and Classic Metal. The Big Four, Led Zeppelin, Alice Cooper, ACDC, and of course, Black fucking Sabbath. Since the Middle Ages, humanity has been disturbed by the tritone. 
a musical interval comprised of three whole notes. The tritone is dissonant and restless, begging for another chord to support it, and forcing the listener to anticipate another chord that may never come. The human ear naturally craves symmetry and resolution. Music lacking these attributes inspires fear, anxiety, confusion, and rage. Like all interesting art, the tritone was labeled evil. Its pointed dissonance earned it the title Diabolus in Musica, or The Devil in Music. Rumors that musicians were excommunicated from the church for performing the interval are probably just fables. The more believable story is that the Vatican officials listed the tritone as potentially dangerous, meaning it made people want to have sex, and made a point of not using it in the classical music. What makes the vilification of the tritone interesting is that such a dissonant musical tone is somehow attractive to listeners. This implies that people want to experience darkness, to indulge in the excitement and energy of anger, sorrow, and sin. Throughout history, classical composers like Claude Debussy and Franz Litz have used the tritone to add weight and power to their music. But the man who finally opened wide the gates of the abyss wasn't a European wig wearer. He was a black dude from Seattle named Jimmy. Hippies who like leather. Former hippies would have you believe that the love generation washed away the drab normality of the 1950s in a tidal wave of tambourine and embroidery. This is revisionist history. The revolution's birth was a painful one, and the confusion and disillusionment that it caused was funneled directly into the music of the time. Rock and roll's intensity and agony was always present in America's black communities. Delta bluesmen and New York jazz savants were inspired by the cultural and economic woes experienced daily in black America and used music to express and escape their pain. For white listeners, the fact that this complicated, enthralling music was made by the ultimate other led them to create myths and superstitions surrounding it. One of the favorites is that Robert Johnson, the godfather of blues guitar, got his talent by making a deal with the devil at the crossroads. To many, the story made sense. Something so wonderful and yet so painful as Johnson's music had to be put on earth by Satan himself. It's hard to believe Old Scratch was controlling Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and the Beatles, whose perfectly tailored outfits and personas seemed less satanic. But the moral authorities of the time were quick to invent the wickedness they sought to find in rock music. Elvis swinging his hips? A declaration that he wanted to thrust his pelvis into wholesome teenage girls. Paul McCartney asking a girl for her hand? Obviously he planned to place that hand on his writhing groin. Jerry Lee Lewis singing about great balls of fire? The fire is hellfire, fire. And the balls, well, you get the idea. Of these bands, the Beatles were the ones who turned out to be the most dangerous. Their carefully managed personas 
hiding four good old boys who just wanted to make bank and meet chicks. In his autobiography, White Line Fever, Motorhead frontman and lifelong Beatles fan, Lemmy Kilmister explains, The Beatles were hard men. They were from Liverpool, which is like Hamburg or Norfolk, Virginia. A hard, seafaring town, all these dockers and sailors all around that beat the piss out of you if you so much as winked at them. Ringo's from the Dingle, which is like the fucking Bronx. The Rolling Stones were the Mummies Boys. They were all college students from the outskirts of London. They went to starve themselves in London, but it was by choice to give themselves some sort of aura of disrespectability. To be fair, the Rolling Stones were vital to heavy metal's development with their chemically impaired dabbling in black magic. They also coined the persona of the mule-faced sex gypsy, a rugged biker hippie so ugly he was irresistible. This archetype was the backbone of the appeal of bands like Guns N' Roses and Poison. See Glam Metal on page 63. But while Mick Jagger sang about sympathizing with Satan, Lennon and McCartney possessed a more subconscious menace. Their jauntiest tune is literally about a medical student beating women to death with a silver hammer. After luring in the fanatic teenage daughters of the world, they started smoking weed, going to India, and trading their pop star trappings for psychedelia and soul in a natural reaction to the world crumbling around them. No cultural event inspired the birth of heavy metal more than the Vietnam War. The carnage that Nam introduced the average person and children murdered, forests, napalm, GIs wearing necklaces of ears, crushed any remaining normalcy and sexual repression left over from the 1950s. This spawned a generation of driven, progressive revolutionaries who wanted to expand their minds and fight the power. But it also birthed a new breed of misanthropic stoners who wanted to drown out the massive letdown of witnessing humanity's true nature in a flood of electric guitar. The last of the great hippie musicians was Jimi Hendrix, a ragged-haired African-American frontman who dressed like a colorblind pirate and moaned soulful lyrics about fire, voodoo, and Joe shooting his old lady. He was also a brilliant guitarist who could make his acts exude both ass-shaking melodies and roaring waves of noise. His death in 1970 was prophetic. One last bad vibe for a generation that was wondering if all vibes were bad at the end of the day. Of his many awesome songs, Hendrix is most remembered for Purple Haze, the opener of 1967's Are You Experienced? The song is known for its catchy central riff and an often misheard line in its chorus. But for the rock and roll mythologist, the eight accents of crunching guitar that open the track are most important. The dissonant tone in the diminished fifth, the devil's tritone. With it, Hendrix uncorked the bottle containing all the evils of rock and roll and unleashed them onto the world. Music to take your shirt off to. 
the etymology of the term heavy metal isn't entirely clear. The periodic table of elements contains several heavy metals, including highly radioactive uranium. In his novel, The Soft Machine, author and drug enthusiast William S. Burroughs includes a character named Uranium Willie, the heavy metal kid. Burroughs would go on to use the term for hard drugs. Weirdo art collective Hapshash and The Colored Coat named their 1967 album with The Human Collective and The Heavy Metal Kids. For most fans, though, the name comes from Steppenwolf's 1968 single, Born to be Wild, which includes the line, I like smoking lightning, heavy metal thunder. The song's use of the term and its outlaw sensibilities officially designated heavy metal as the title for a specific brand of muscular rock. But metal's early forefathers didn't particularly like the title, and whether or not their music qualifies as metal has long been debated over six or more beers. Some bands like Michigan's MC5 or Iggy Pop and the Stooges possess tons of raw energy, but not enough low-end and grind. Others, like British fantasy rock group Jethro Tull and Long Island heavy soul band Vanilla Fudge, had plenty of groove, but not enough fire. The best example of a band that was metal but not really metal is Led Zeppelin. Why Led Zeppelin is not a metal band isn't exactly clear. It has all the pieces of a metal band, including a powerful rhythm section, a brilliant guitarist, and a sexually unhinged singer shrieking about hobbits. But it's widely accepted that, though it influenced metal in a number of ways, Led Zeppelin itself is not metal. Part of this might be that Led Zeppelin is too universal for one subgenre. By the time they stopped calling themselves the New Yardbirds, Jimmy Page guitar, Robert Plant vocals, John Paul Jones bass, and John Bonham drums were already on their way to being the biggest band in the world a title they held throughout the 1970s as they toured in a private plane and banged every up-and-coming model they could. Their music actively courts mainstream enjoyment, never fully committing to metal's misanthropic melodrama. Page wrote dark, forceful riffs, Emigrant Song and Cashmere, but he also wrote an eight-minute nonsensical ballad that became the most requested FM radio song of all time, Stairway to Heaven. That said, Zeppelin's influence on heavy metal is undeniable. Jimmy Page's riffs are dire, vital, and catchy as hell. The band's mystic destruction of hotel rooms fed the concept of Rockstar as unhinged Lord of the Universe. Page's buying of the Scottish home of fabled occultist Aleister Crowley and the band's use of symbols instead of a title for its fourth album is the stuff of black metal daydreams. The Led Zeppelin Hermit poster is the international symbol for basement marijuana consumption. Even at Zeppelin's strongest, however, Page's guitar licks make heads bob rather than truly bang. For riffs with blunt force impact, fans had to turn to Australia's ACDC. If all the drunk, horny people in the world threw a party, ACDC would be the soundtrack. Everyone knows at least one ACDC song. 
You yourself are softly singing an ACDC song in your head right now as you read this. Which one? Back in Black, Highway to Hell? It's a tale as old as time. Two guitar-playing brothers, Malcolm and Angus Young, got together to make a lot of high-energy noise after going through a couple of lineup changes. They settled on bassist Cliff Williams, drummer Phil Rudd, and hard-drinking vocalist Bon Scott. Angus began performing in costume, finally choosing a schoolboy uniform. The band played hopped-up electric blues about getting wasted and laid, and all the rockers and speed freaks got super into it, elevating ACDC to international fame. After several kick-ass releases, they dropped Back in Black, an album that everyone wants to hear while they're drunk, and which eventually became the second highest selling record of all time, before you ask, Thriller by Michael Jackson is number one. Perhaps, like Led Zeppelin, this is why it's widely accepted that ACDC is not a metal band. It's just too much fun for everyone. Everyone, that is, but ACDC, whose career reads like a bad rap sheet. In 1980, Bon Scott choked to death on his own vomit. The band continued on with singer Brian Johnson, whose shriek was more stylized than Scott's. Then, in 1985, Los Angeles serial killer Richard Night Stalker Ramirez left an ACDC cap at the scene of one of his murders, prompting the media to take the band's fun-loving lyrics about road trips to Hades way too seriously. The track Night Prowler, from 1979's Highway to Hell was implicated, its eerie imaginative lyrics making it believable as poetry that could send a broken mind into a frenzy. The lyrics, as you lay there naked like a body in a tomb, suspended animation, I slip into your room. The band was caught up in the satanic panic of the 1980s when heavy metal's diabolical influence on teenagers became the subject of every daytime talk show. Sadly, to this day, trouble continues to follow ACDC. The band has lost four of its heavyweights, Malcolm Young to dementia, Cliff Williams, who long retired, Phil Rudd for trying to hire a hitman to kill his wife, and Brian Johnson to hearing loss. Johnson was replaced with none other than Guns N' Roses frontman Axl Rose. While some were excited by Axl DC, others weren't. In 2016, over 7,000 Belgian fans asked to have their tickets refunded upon discovering that Axl Rose would be singing for them. If it bleeds, it leads. While the hippie generation elicited little more than amusement and frumpy disdain during its rise to mainstream recognition, everything changed in 1969 when four hippies brutally murdered five people at the Los Angeles home of actress Sharon Tate and director Roman Polanski. The assailants were members of the family of megalomaniacal charlatan Charlie Manson, who had fed them copious amounts of LSD, convinced them he was both God and the devil, and turned them into a brainwashed cult of psychopath love children. The Manson family proved all the wrong people right, publicly illustrating 
that the acid rocker's true agenda was murder in the name of feeling groovy. Manson had been an aspiring singer-songwriter known to Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. Now, suddenly a song like Good Vibrations could be seen as the ecstasy of a killer. Slowly, bands picked up on the media wildfire surrounding the case, realizing that if it could sell newspapers, it could definitely sell records. The result was shock rock. Loud-ass theatrical rock music accompanied by costumes, fireworks, and maybe some fake blood. Shock rock is blue color by nature. If you spend your hard-earned money on a ticket, you deserve a fucking show. A similar appeal applies to monster truck rallies. Among the genre's early pioneers were Arthur Brown, who would wear a flaming helmet while performing Fire, his namesake band's hit single, which is best known for the opening line, I am the god of hellfire. Brown is also known for influencing face painting and metal, a practice that has become grimly serious since the advent of corpse paint. That said, Brown was nothing compared to Kiss, whose effects-filled concerts and stylized face paint designs truly inspired early black metal's live performances. But the king of all shock rock was definitely Alice Cooper from Detroit. Cooper is to Kiss as the Adams family is to the Munsters. While the latter is made up of familiar terrors wearing big smiles, the former is simply an elegant maniac, an all-purpose dastardly character who might have worked in a circus. Young fans who grew up on porno grind will no doubt find Alice Cooper kind of lame. The darkness in his music always takes the form of boyish mischief, which is epitomized in the 1972 hit Schools Out. You know the chorus. In 1975's Welcome to My Nightmare, the first album Cooper made after officially adopting the name as a solo artist contains straightforward horror, but even then it's songs about giant spiders, the Black Widow, cannibalism, devil's food, necrophilia, cold ethyl, and murdering your wife, the Awakening, are all spooky rather than brutal. Even when it included straight jackets, line dancing skeletons, and the infamous guillotine act, Alice Cooper's live horror show was more show than horror, and musically, he was catchy and cinematic with sweeping piano alongside chugging guitars. The shock in question wasn't, say, the alarming grotesquerie of Cannibal Corpse. At the time, though, people were freaked the fuck out. The band's back-alley transvestite style got it signed to Straight Records owned by rock surrealist Frank Zappa. Things came to a perfect head at the Toronto Rock Festival in 1969 when a chicken was placed on stage during Alice Cooper's set. Cooper, assuming all birds could fly, released the chicken into the air. It of course sank like a stone, and the crowd tore it to shreds. He describes a phone call with Zappa about the incident in his episode of VH1's Behind the Music. So I get a call from Zappa saying, did you kill a chicken on stage? And I said, no. And he said, well don't tell anybody about that. Everybody loves it. You're the most notorious character of all time now. 
Alice Cooper's music wasn't initially metal. Welcome to My Nightmare sounds more like Meatloaf than Maiden, but as the genre evolved, he went with the flow. From 1986 Constrictor onward, his music aped that of edgier glam bands of the time, incorporating big choruses, melodramatic keyboards, and party-along lyrics. This culminated with 1991's Hey Stupid, which features Feed My Frankenstein, a horror-themed sex anthem made popular for appearing in Wayne's World shortly before Wayne and Garth kowtow before Cooper, screaming, We're not worthy! We're not worthy! Alice then went on to embrace the influence from genres like Alternative. 1994's The Last Temptation came out alongside a comic book written by American Gods author Neil Gaiman, and New Metal in 2000's Brutal Planet, which shares its name with a popular haunted house attraction. Thanks to him, musicians like Gigi Allen, Guar, Ghoul, and Slipknot knew to get the crowd interested by doing some utterly insane shit. Alright, here we go. The Black Sabbath section. Titled Ground Zero Birmingham. So Led Zeppelin was metal lyrically, Alice Cooper was metal thematically, and ACDC was metal spiritually. But at the end of the day, metal, like all good things, required a blood sacrifice to be properly born. At the age of 17, British guitarist Tony Iommi lost the tips of the middle and ring fingers on his right hand in an accident at the sheet metal factory where he worked. After being told he'd never play guitar again, he decided to go for it anyway, and built himself a homemade prosthetic out of strips of leather from an old jacket and thimbles. Because he couldn't feel the strings, Iomi would strike them harder than necessary, and he begun tuning his guitar down so he could better bend them. These factors added up to a guitar sound reminiscent of steel gears grinding against each other in a madman's dream. After breaking up their previous band, Mythology, Iomi and drummer Bill Ward responded to an ad in the paper and met up with singer John Ozzy Osbourne, who then brought on bassist Geezer Butler. They called their band Earth, but after being mistaken for another band named Earth, they decided to ditch the moniker. The cinema across from their rehearsal space was showing the 1963 Boris Karloff movie Black Sabbath, so they went with that and wrote a slow, creeping song about a satanic black mass. The song Black Sabbath opens with three dark, ominous tones. You guessed it, the devil's tritone, spoken in the throaty growl of Iomi's guitar. With that, Black Sabbath became the first heavy metal band. Their first five records, 1970's self-titled debut, 70's Paranoid, 71's Master of Reality, 72's Volume 4, and 73's Sabbath Bloody Sabbath are the bones on which the entire body of heavy metal music was formed. 
While Iommi's guitar sound is what sets Black Sabbath apart from its contemporaries, it is undeniably Ozzy Osbourne who gives the band its apocalyptic allure. On paper, Osbourne is not a terrific frontman with his onstage tendency to clap and smile like a disturbed child. He also spent much of his career being famously unreliable due to his love of drugs and alcohol. But the guy is credible by reason of insanity. His reedy cries about death and the devil swallowing the world are upsettingly genuine and smack of the Manson family's drug-soaked madness. Like all great bands of the time, Black Sabbath's initial success gave way to mediocre albums and too many drugs. Osborne's erratic cocaine-fueled behavior led to his being fired in 1979, the same year he married his eventual manager, Sharon. He was replaced by Ronnie James Dio, a diminutive American singer with a booming operatic voice at which point the band's sound transformed into what we now think of as traditional metal. Full of bright distortion, galloping rhythms, and a small singer wailing away up front. They released two solid records, 1980's Heaven and Hell and 1981's Mob Rules, before Dio left to start a solo career. After a semi-decent album featuring Deep Purple's Ian Gillian, 1983's Born Again, the band's output became a little tired and typical. By the late 1990s, Ozzy Osbourne had cornered the market on mainstream metal. He and Sharon were running Ozfest, a traveling metal festival featuring all the biggest names in angry white kid music. Bands like System of a Down, Slipknot, and Demu Borgir launched their careers by dominating Ozfest's second stage. Meanwhile, in 1994, Sony released a Black Sabbath tribute album, Nativity in Black, which introduced the up-and-coming new metal generation to the band via covers by bands like Faith No More, White Zombie, and Typo Negative. In 1997, the original Sabbath lineup reunited to tour with the Ozfest and release a double live album, Reunion. The record was a huge hit. It went gold in the United States and finally won the band a Grammy in 2000 for Iron Man, some 30 years after it was originally released. In 2006, the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by none other than Metallica. The Dio era lineup reunited as Heaven and Hell and put out 2009's The Devil You Know, the last album Dio would record before his unfortunate death from cancer in 2010. Next came 13. Sabbath's 19th studio release, which won the band another Grammy. The album was surrounded by controversy, as it claimed to reunite the original lineup of the band, even though Bill Ward didn't play drums. Ward then came out publicly decrying Sabbath's business practices, claiming he was given a totally unsatisfactory contract. Ozzy publicly fired back at Bill on Facebook, proving you're never too old to act like a dumb fucking teenager. After 13, Sabbath announced its farewell tour, The End. The massive, multi-year trek concluded at a show in the band's hometown of Birmingham in 2017, thus bringing to a close the career of the first metal band. 
By the time you've read this, you'll most likely have bought your tickets to the reunion tour. From here to oblivion. At this point, whether Metal had any idea what it was doing remained unclear. The bands that would be lumped into the category English Heavy Rockers Foghat, Scottish Shriekers Nazareth, and Canadian Progressive Neo-Pagans Rush were nothing alike and had no musical loyalty to one another. Deep Purple Wild Fans with its distinctive heavy riffs, including Beavis and Butthead Sing Along Smoke on the Water, and Blue Oyster Cult was known for its creepy autumnal ballad, Don't Fear the Reaper. But these were cases of metal being accidentally tripped over rather than played for the sake of playing it. But though it was a hair-lipped bastard child wandering the musical wasteland with its pants down, heavy metal had been born. And though antisocial and misanthropic by nature, this fledgling genre harbored dreams of world domination. When the next generation of rock and rollers finally announced that they were looking for something bigger, crazier, and louder than anything else, heavy metal was there, ready to receive them, with horns sharpened and muscles rippling. Alright, so as mentioned in the intro to the book, each section ends with the starter kit that you'll need for this particular genre and some homework. So the starter kit for Proto Metal. Ready to tune in, turn on, and drop the fuck out? You will need hair, 18 inches in length, unwashed, straight, or permed. One denim jacket, open to one's bare chest, one pair of bell-bottom jeans, pockets embroidered, one blacklight, one Frank Frazetta poster to hang over the aforementioned blacklight, three capsules of high-grade mescaline, Zap Comics number two poking out of your back pocket, Dreams Shattered, AP Math Class in an hour. The homework for Proto Metal. The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Purple Haze, on RU Experience from 1967. Cream, Sunshine of Your Love. The Beatles, Come Together, from Abbey Road, 1969. The Rolling Stones, Sympathy for the Devil, from Beggar's Banquet, 1968. The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, Fire, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, 1968. MC5, Kick Out the Jams, from Kick Out the Jams, 1969. Blue Cheer, Summertime Blues, from Vincibus Eruptum, 1968. Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath, on Black Sabbath, from 1970. Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song from Led Zeppelin II, 1970. ACDC, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap from Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, 1976. Alice Cooper's Schools Out from Schools Out, 1972. Mountain, Mississippi Queen, Climbing from 1970. Smoke on the Water from Deep Purple off Machine Head from 1972. Iron Man from Black Sabbath off of 1970's Paranoid. Emerald from Thin Lizzy off of Jailbreak 
1972. Cashmere from Led Zeppelin off of Physical Graffiti, 1975. Don't Fear the Reaper from Blue Oyster Cult off Agents of Fortune from 1976. Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf off of Bat Out of Hell from 1977. Motorhead from Hawkwind. King of Speed single from 1975. For those of you who don't know, Hawkwind is the pre-Motorhead band with Lemmy as their bass player. Children of the Grave from Black Sabbath off Masters of Reality from 1971. Steven from Alice Cooper off Welcome to My Nightmare from 1975. And finally, Back in Black by ACDC off the album Back in Black, 1980. Alright listeners, so that completes chapter one of Hellraisers on Proto Metal. I hope you enjoyed this new series from the Monster's Lair. I hope you enjoyed my narration of this book. I hope you enjoyed the contents of this book. And I hope that you'll join me next time for the next edition of the Monster Reads Hellraisers. A complete visual history of Heavy Metal Mayhem by Axel Rosenberg and Christopher Crovitin. Alright listeners, so Hellraisers has little bonus segments sprinkled throughout the entire book. And comparing it to Metal, it reminded me of hidden bonus tracks at the end of really awesome heavy metal albums. So, I'm calling these little excerpts in the books the bonus track, and this is your first one of this new series. So for your first bonus track, it's titled Metal Bassists. Fewer strings, less respect. Bassists take a lot of shit in metal. It's not entirely clear when this trend began, although it was surely sometime after the death of legendary Metallica bassist Cliff Burton. But it seems to be rooted largely in two facts. Bass guitars usually have fewer strings than regular guitars, and guitarists often record a band's bass lines in the studio. But, bassists are the unsung heroes of metal, according to Nailed the Mix's Eli Levy a producer, engineer, mixer, and educator who over the past 15 years has worked with a myriad of popular modern metal bands including Deicide, Whitechapel, and Devil Driver. Since bass players generally don't play solos and the bass isn't a lead instrument, it hasn't been as attractive to certain types of musicians who generally gravitate toward instruments that will get them attention like the guitar. So bass gets overlooked a lot, and without it, you're fucked. It's almost one of those things that's just unteachable. Either you've got it or you don't. And why, pray tell, are you fucked without a good bassist? Lots of people don't realize that a really great guitar tone on a metal record, a tone that's huge and has teeth, and fills up the room and tears your head off, isn't just guitars it is. 
at least in part, a bass tone blended with guitars, Levy explains. And it's not just the low end. The bass also contributes to the mids of the sound and how to aggressive and to how aggressive the drums sound. If you somehow get your hands on the multi-tracks for a song that's been really well mixed, try taking the bass out. You'll notice that suddenly all the life has been sucked out of the recording. Even though you can't always identify the bass in metal the way you can, say, in funk music, where there isn't a competing instrument, it's very important. Nor, according to Levy, should anyone buy into the myth that it takes less work to become a great bassist than it does to become a great guitarist. It's a different kind of discipline, he says. To really be great at bass, you have to be technical enough to keep up, you have to play really hard but not too hard, and you need to understand rhythm in a way that's more relatable to drummers than guitarists. The bass is almost a hybrid of the guitar and the drum. You need to understand how to translate stuff on the fretboard into a feel that locks with the drummer. Bass adds this pocket to the music that no other instrument can add, and that's a very, very difficult thing to learn. It's almost one of those things that's unteachable. Either you've got it, or you don't. Insofar as guitarists recording bass lines in the studio, Levi says it's a decision that has nothing to do with skill. Two people cannot match feels exactly the same way. It's like with handwriting. Everyone has their own unique feel. And one thing that's really important in metal is that you have a really huge guitar sound that drives the whole thing. Sometimes you get variations in the left and right guitar, but often left and right guitar are playing the same thing. One of the reasons that's effective as a driving force is because their timing is locked. If you take two guitars that are locked and put a bass that isn't locked under them, that will detract from the impact. So you have the guitar player record the bass parts too because only he has the feel and can make the guitars and the bass sync up perfectly. The Monster's Lair is a proud member of the Myriad Podcast Network.